podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love, starting with the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Today we meet Kyle Itani, chef and owner of Oakland's Hopscotch and the brand new Itani Ramen. Itani started learning Japanese cooking as a way to connect to his heritage, but realized that his own Japanese-American culture had a rich food history of its own. Itani Ramen focuses a little more heavily on Japanese menu items, complete with a Japanese-style vending machine in the restaurant, but has a totally relaxed American feel to the restaurant. Ramen itself is a more modern Japanese staple, without heavy tradition, which is partly what drew Itani to the dish in the first place. Relatively new to our country, in Japan, and they're just like, so, yeah, do whatever you want to it. And so because of that, you kind of get like these regional ramens and you're not stepping on anyone's toes. You're not being disrespectful to like decades and centuries of traditional like sushi making. And it's, it's really a fun thing. Let's have a listen. So we are here at Itani Ramen, actually in the basement of the building. And we are with Kyle Itani. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. In your own words, can you describe Itani Ramen? Itani Ramen is um, is the ramen shop that I just wanted to offer to Oakland and the Bay Area in general. I love ramen. I love eating ramen, like learning about ramen. We used to do a ramen pop-up at Hopscotch when we first opened, and that was just kind of a way for us to honestly just cover payroll. Like when we first opened, we were like, oh, we need to make like an extra thousand bucks a week. And so we started doing ramen late nights, 11 p.m. to 2 a.m., um, just on Fridays. And it was really just using up all the bones that we had all week from pork chops and chicken carcasses and things like that. And so we, we would serve ramen, and it was super fun, and, and it was great. And then um, ramen started really coming along in the Bay Area, like other places opened. Uh, a lot of places have opened now. And... I was like, yeah, I would love to just kind of put a ramen shop out there that has my own kind of version of ramen. And the great thing about ramen for me is that everybody can do anything. There's so much creative license. And I just love that, like, you can just kind of do your own style. And and it's just like, it's just ramen. It's awesome. It's super fun. No one's, like, really taking it crazy seriously. Like, oh, man, ramen should be this way only. There's no, like, tradition behind it. So it's super fun and creative. And I just like to play with that and kind of get inspiration create ramen out of it and then it's, it's a really fun restaurant i studied japanese cooking for many many years all kinds of japanese cooking techniques and ingredients applications and there's so much tradition and rich history behind everything even like tempura like frying something and you know a tempura batter is like there's like michelin star tempura restaurants that just like do one thing and just fried tempura and it's like incredible but there's such a tradition behind it and you have these can we just pause and just acknowledge that you don't it's not tempura oh yeah yeah oh sure yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) i know well that's the big thing because even on the menus when i write it at hopscotch it's we spell it t-e-n-p-u-r-a and everyone, not everyone, every now and then someone's like, oh, you misspelled it, there should be an M. <laughs> and I'm like, actually, there's like no M character in like the way you write it out. If you saw it written out in Japanese, there's like not an M character. So Interesting. Yeah, so we say tempura, but um, yeah, so even that's part of the tradition. <laughs> that's part of the history. And so, yeah, you, you know, as a chef, as a young chef in Japan, I feel like you, you're, you're studying, you want to... Um, respect everyone's traditions before you and so 
it's kind of difficult to take creative license with like sushi or tempura. I mean, there's certain ways. There's there's cert, there's only a certain number of fish or seafood in the ocean, and like it's all been prepared before, like in, in a traditional sushi manner. Um, there's some variations, and people can get you know really into different aspects of it. But for the most part, you're you're kind of in this traditional um, cuisine style. And then if you look at ramen in Japan, it's kind of like, you're just like, eh, we kind of stole this from the Chinese. And, you know, it's relatively new to our country like in Japan. And they're just like, so, yeah, do whatever you want to it. And so because of that, you kind of get like these regional ramens. That, like, you know, wherever you grew up, wherever you live in Japan, um, there's a certain ramen style that you kind of grew up eating. It's just the ingredients or whatever from that prefecture. And so I love that. I think that's so cool, so fun. And it really fits within, like, kind of this millennial generation of, like, you know, instant satisfaction. <laughs> and you're just like, oh, what can I do? Like, I can be very creative with it. I can just take inspiration from this and create something. And you're not stepping on anyone's toes. You're not being disrespectful to, like, decades and centuries of traditional, like, sushi making. And it's, it's really a fun thing. And I think in America, it's caught on because it is so fun. And that's, that's one of the vibes we definitely wanted to put forward at Ramen here, at Itani Ramen, where we're like, yeah, like, we're going to take the food very seriously. We're going to take the service very seriously. Please, as a customer, don't take anything very seriously. Like, we're just all having fun here. So the music's a little bit loud. The vibe's very bustling. And, um, yeah, we just wanted to have a really fun ramen shop. And you guys have an awesome location. You're right across the street from the Fox Theater. Yeah, the Fox Theater has been great. I mean, they do, you know, so many great shows. And we're, like, right in between the Bart Stop and the Fox Theater front door. So anyone coming or going is is, is walking by the front door. It's pretty funny. There's that crosswalk right in front of us. And we can see people lined up waiting for the crosswalk to turn. And then there's just, like, hordes of people coming to the crosswalk. And we're just like, how many people are going to walk in the door? And how many people are going to go to BART? And so it's kind of a fun game to see. But it, it's really it's really been a, a good first week for us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, congratulations. You just opened. Yeah, yeah. We just finished our fifth service last night. So things are going great. We have, uh, you know, a lot of things we want to change. And and make better but the end result is is really great so far it's just getting the the process behind that a little streamlined so so far so good yeah so what so what's the process like of preparing to open a restaurant and is this now sort of a time where you reflect on what happened the first week and now you make some changes yeah definitely i mean like for for me especially i feel like you know, just one serve, first service, there's like a list of things I want to change immediately, right? And then I have to prioritize, okay, what's what's a week one problem? And then what's a week two problem to fix, you know, or week three or four even? Um, some things can just be the way they are and we'll get through it for now. We have other uh, things to tackle and then come back to it. Um, but yeah, it'll all work out in a few months and we'll be rolling. Are you from the area originally? Or? I grew up in Vacaville, okay. so it's where Sacramento. Um, Vacaville's a great place to grow up for me. It's kind of funny. Everyone either moves to Sacramento or the Bay Area. Like, nobody stays. They're <laughs> split. A lot of people go back eventually, but I've made my way out here. And, yeah, I've kind of been – I've used the Oakland especially as my home base, even when I've traveled and lived other places temporarily, like Japan or New York, and always kind of kept – Oakland as my home and or at least thought of it as my home and um, I've been here almost 12 years now so yeah yeah so what does uh, because Vacaville doesn't have too much in the way of like 
different kinds of cuisine. Yeah. I would guess I've driven through there a lot. I'm originally <laughs> from farther up north in, in uh, Northern California. Uh, so I remember there's an In-N-Out. There's an In-N-Out. That Very wasn't there famous. when I was growing up, but yeah, yeah. That was a big exciting addition to the town for sure. Yeah. And so I, I would guess it's very traditional kind of like American style like diners and Mexican yeah, totally. food, I'm guessing. Yeah, totally. A lot of Mexican food. I mean, it's kind of funny. Uh, I-80 kind of splits the town, and you have, like, the newer side, which is, like, you know, we are claimed to fame as our factory stores, right? Like, giant factory right. stores. <laughs> so we have a lot of those kind of chain restaurant-style things. And on the other side of 80 is, like, the more old, older Vacaville, the older high school, things like that. And they have, like, more mom-and-pop kind of restaurant-y type things there, which is great. Um, yeah, so Vacaville was, I mean, for culinary-wise, Vacaville was cool. But then the other thing about Vacaville that I enjoyed growing up was there's a strong agricultural tie into there. They used to do this onion festival there, where, <laughs> like, all about growing onions. And um, and inherently in the name, I mean, Cowtown, right? So, right. like, uh, um, yeah, we have friends that, that raised their own cows, mostly just to, like, mow their fields you know like and then when it gets time where there's uh the rainy season starts or whatever and there's not a lot of uh grass to be eaten anymore they they butcher them so like that's kind of a fun it's a rough life yeah like it's it's a kind of a it, but it's cool to grow up in that environment yeah. and just kind of see really where food comes from from the beginning yeah i, I mean it's definitely kind of the heart of the north central valley mm-hmm, totally um so you have Japanese heritage. Yeah, in my dad's Japanese, but um, I'm fourth generation, so four generations removed um, from Japan. Um, so we, I don't really know any of my Japanese relatives in Japan. Like I go to Japan every year, but I don't visit them per se. I've made friends of my own in Japan that I like to visit every year, and um, like I don't really speak Japanese. I mean, I try and learn. But my dad doesn't speak Japanese, so we're pretty far removed. So it's kind of its own. Um, culture, Japanese-American. It's like its own thing, you know, because we have our own history um, with internment camps and whatnot and all that other stuff. And so, like, that's kind of how I look at it. Like, oh, you're Japanese. And, like, when I talk to um, Nihonjins, like, people from Japan, I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm pretty American. And they would agree. They'd be like, you're definitely not Japanese. Like, I get it. But, like, being Japanese-American, you have your own. uh, There's a very strong community, a very strong culture behind that. Yeah. So um, did your, was it your great 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 grandfather grandparents uh yeah exactly uh in the late 1800s was that Uh, i think it was the early 1900s got it yeah Yeah, it was um brushing up on my history and yeah yeah. there definitely looked like there was a big wave of um japanese immigrants in the late 1800s early 1900s and a lot of um a lot of them settled in the bay well ours found settled in salinas or actually in um um San Luis Obispo County, like Shell Beach, Pismo Beach area. Interesting. Um, and got into farming, green onion farming, things like that. So, wow. Yeah. So you definitely come from a family of food growers. Definitely, food yeah. And then on my mom's side, um, she's um, part Sicilian, and my grandfather's Sicilian, and he was a butcher in Salinas as well. He had a butcher shop down on wow. Main Street at one point, way back when. So, um, yeah, always been around food growing up and kind of making food and eating food and just it's I mean I think everyone's history they have a connection to food which is why it's so it's such a great avenue for people to talk about and be involved in so what was your first memory with food yeah my first memory for food I think I have like two memories one like that stand out like very strongly for me one is 
um, there was one, there's kind of like one Japanese restaurant in Vacaville growing up. And uh, my dad would always go there for lunch because he, he worked across the street from it. And um, it was just a, like a very mom and pop operation. Uh, the chef's name was Babasan. We just called him Babasan. That was real name, but that's what we called him. <laughs> and uh, I remember it was like some like T-ball or like even, I don't know, bare, not even Little League baseball game. And it was raining. It was cold. And like I got like, I was got like hit by the pitch or something and like hurt like hell and then I was just like this is the worst the baseball might not be for me and then um <laughs> afterwards my dad took me to this Japanese restaurant and I just remember like we walked in and like I just got a bowl of miso soup and I was like oh my god this is like so comforting I think that was the first time I felt really comforted by food where it was like you know it's just miso soup it's just dashi and miso right <laughs> but like the dashi only has a few ingredients too but just the warmth the umami rich flavors and just kind of the satisfying um it just like warms your whole body it was great that was like a one strong food memory for me as far as like comfort food and then my mom was a uh she was a in education elementary school education um for her career and she would do this thing where she would teach um kind of a, a squid anatomy uh lesson and we would like dissect squid and then she would cut it up and like fry it. Like she would like bring like a thing of oil. I don't know if they can do that now in schools, but back then, you know, whatever. So she would have like a pot of oil and um, dredge it and then fry it. And then everyone would eat the squid after we dissected it, which was kind of fun. Um, but I remember like we fried stuff like that at the house all the time. So it wasn't like a really big thing for me. But I remember seeing like all the other kids and even the teachers, like they were really excited about this. And I was like, wow, food can really like change people's whole like attitudes and like it just puts people in a different mood i think that's so like from a hospitality point i think that was the first time i really thought like oh wow food has this like bigger power than just kind of like just feeding somebody so yeah yeah so so what was it about the japanese kind of influence on on your upbringing and um now as an adult that made you want to focus on um on japanese cuisine mm -hmm. in both your restaurants yeah well, I think for me, like growing up like mixed race and Japanese American and not really having strong ties to Japan, kind of I started cooking Japanese food as a way to kind of connect to Japan in a way for me. And I was like, okay, if I study and I learn about food or J Japan through food, that'll be like a really cool way to kind of better understand the culture. And I did that for a while, like a long time. And, I, and then so that was great. And then like as I got older into the cooking, um, I thought, well, okay, now like I know a lot about actual Japanese cuisine. And I started thinking, like, well, there's this whole other culture that I'm actually a part of already, the Japanese-American culture. And that has its own set of food stuff. And a lot of it is just Japanese ingredients or Japanese flavors, but then used in very American-style dishes. And that's kind of where hopscotch came from. I was like, oh, that's what I'm going to do at hopscotch. So we have like fried chicken and pork chops and burgers, but there's all this kind of Japanese twist to it. And it's not really fusion. It's just more like what I kind of grew up eating, the flavors I grew up eating, and the, the actual dishes I grew up eating, you know, as being very American, and then kind of putting that twist on it, and that's how Hopscotch came about. And then, yeah, and then ramen just came right after that, because ramen just fits into that vibe, too, where um, everyone loves ramen, or everyone has an opinion about ramen. So, like, it's kind of out there, and, and that's kind of a fun challenge. When did you realize it was time to open a second location? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if it's ever really time, because, <laughs> like, as far as timelines go, I mean, Hopscotch was, um, 
probably almost three years old when I started thinking about it. That three-year mark was like a magical day for me. I felt like, I was like, oh, wow, things are really actually pretty good here. Like, staff is all on point with what we're doing. Three years for a restaurant is pretty established. You know, it doesn't sound like in any other industry, but three years open for a restaurant, you definitely have um, a point of view that everyone's kind of familiar with. So that's kind of what you're doing, and you're not really changing that. You, you might you know, obviously change your menu items, but the style of the restaurant is pretty much set at that point. And so the staff, so it's easier for the staff. They know what's going on. I had a lot of staff that was with us still after the first three years, which was awesome. And they all wanted to move up and take on more responsibility, and I love that. I'm big into professional development for the staff, so I kind of was um, letting them kind of, you know, do more of the administrative stuff and have more influence on the menu. And I became more of like um, a mentor, or teacher role kind of thing. And then I was like, all right, this is going really, really well. They're doing such a great job. And then so now I kind of had time to think about my own interests, about like what else I would want to do. And yeah, that's how ramen kind of came about. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Kaya Latani of Itani Ramen. your background and how did you um so how did you get involved in the restaurant industry that got you to the point to open up hopscotch yeah well, that's the kind of funny story so growing up back well we didn't have uh what we didn't have growing up was the food network and so then <laughs> like i moved to san luis obispo to go to college and they had uh the food network there and back then it was great it was three hours of programming a day and it just repeated those three hours like all day it was like emerald <laughs> Uh, good Eats and something else. I don't know. But it was great. And so I would like, it yeah, should be studying, but instead I was like watching like the Food Network and then I'd be like, all right, I'm going to try and make that. And I'd like go to the grocery store and like get the ingredients and come back and completely make a giant mess of the kitchen and not really have anything edible come out. But that was super fun for me to kind of see like, oh yeah, this is like, this is way more interesting than, than studying. So I kind of kept doing that and then I was like maybe I should go to culinary school so I went to culinary school and then learned more about just cooking techniques and restaurant life um and then uh and then I don't know then I like went off on some weird tangent I I worked on a cruise ship for a while which was crazy and then I um and then eventually I met uh the (laughs) chef that would be the mentor chef for me growing um to actually develop my um myself into restaurants like sit-down restaurants kinds of things so um yeah that, that i met him in sacramento and then we came out here and opened um revamped yoshi's oakland and opened yoshi san francisco and then um yeah that was such a great relationship and time I met a lot of great that that's like the formidable years like even all the staff that i work with at those restaurants still friends with all of them it's great even though they're all over the world now but like it's kind of fun to have that um that network and yeah, that's how I got to here. Yoshi's is definitely a uh, a venerable location here in the Bay Area. Totally, yeah. We we had just celebrated our twenty fifth um, episode 
and in episodes 24 and 25, we uh, we met with Chef David Lawrence uh-huh. yeah. and Chef Jake Whitlock uh, at 1300 on Fillmore and Black Park Barbecue, and they were talking a lot about the influence of Yoshi's San Francisco uh-huh. um, on the Fillmore district at the time. And, yeah. Um, it's good to know that even though they weren't able to survive the rents of San Francisco, that they're still very much a force here in Oakland. And then how did you transition from that to hopscotch? Um, well, I, I kind of traveled around a little bit and I kind of thought, okay, well, where do I want to open a restaurant? And I just immediately thought, oh, of course, Oakland, like I've always kind of considered it my home. And literally just with my partner, Jenny, we just were like walking up and down streets of Oakland looking for empty uh, spaces that could be restaurants you know we did, I mean it's funny to think about now because little did we know back then what we were actually doing but we made a couple great decisions one was taking over a space that was already a restaurant so it was kind of an easy flip um, we didn't really change anything just a few pieces of kitchen equipment and mm-hmm. and uh, some aesthetics painted and opened the doors um, so that was great um, and then yeah so I knew Oakland and found the space it was an old barbecue restaurant and they had been closed already and so um i actually found it on craigslist miraculously it was absurd <laughs> like i don't know it was like you could never do this now and that was only four years ago yeah so yeah i was on craigslist i think it was like listed for like sixty-five thousand dollars or something ridiculously inexpensive in comparison to today's restaurants and uh that was awesome i mean we, jenny and i were in a great position to like kind of assume that um, space. The the landlord, he's awesome. He he just kind of was like, I have no idea what you guys are gonna do. I don't even really care. You're gonna pay me rent, great. And so we were like, awesome. So he just took a chance on us because back then, you know, I was calling other great locations and no, like, oh, okay, what restaurants do you own? I'm like, oh, this will be my first, and nobody wants to talk to you. You know, it's like you got to be established to really get your foot in the door. But mm-hmm. that's why we're like, but it's kind of makes such a great story. We're like over on San Pablo. We're like out of the way. Like no one could really find us for a while. <laughs> and so, you know, it all comes with the territory. So, yeah, yeah it was great. It was great. I was doing some research in this area, and Oakland actually has a pretty rich Japanese-American history. Mm-hmm. Um, did that have any influence on your deciding to choose these locations for Hopscotch and Itani, or was it more just happenstance? Yeah, it was more happenstance. Um, yeah, kind of the, the Japanese history, Japanese-American history of, of Oakland, um, I didn't really uh, even know about before I started, like, being a more part of the community i think like living in the community there's like that aspect of it and then like being a business owner in the community you're like it's another level of how involved you get and how much you understand the history of of what was here before and especially looking for uh a location for itani ramen and kind of looking at all the buildings in downtown oakland and stuff there's such a rich history there as Mm -hmm. well um yeah so that's not a thing i mean because when you think about Bay Area Japanese American communities. It's well, there's Japantown in San Francisco, which is there. Definitely San Jose is huge. For me, Sacramento was a big place because back was pretty close to Sacramento. And then we spent a lot of time with Salinas, good families there. So like those were kind of the major um, Japanese American communities as far as like Cherry Blossom or Obon festivals. And yeah, never really, never really partaked in anything in Oakland like that. Um, but I know people now are trying to kind of band together, or turn that near the Lake Merritt stop. They're trying to do a Japanese American um, community center kind of grouping, which is which is great. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. Um, there's the the Buddhist Church of Oakland, not far from uh-huh. here, um, uh, which I guess had a pretty significant role in Japanese American history in the '40s uh, when it was a pretty dark time yeah. for yeah, California yeah, yeah. and totally. the Japanese American community. So it's kind of neat that you're kind of in the middle of that physical location mm. and the physical history of the area. Do you get any? Um, kind of old school members of the Japanese American <laughs> community coming by. Um, Scott Jiratani Ramen. Yeah, I mean, not that no one. I'm sure we do. No one's really jumped out and introduced <laughs> themselves to me, um, except for like my family and stuff. Because you know, <laughs> and, all, and all their network of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the fun. The joke is like uh, my dad always says is like, you know, he'll be like, oh yeah, you know, we live in, we live near Sacramento or whatever, and like, oh, you must know like the. Uh, you know, like the Tony Mura family from Sacramento or something. And my dad's like, just because I'm Japanese doesn't mean I know everyone in Sacramento, <laughs> except I definitely know that family. So, <laughs> so like, it turns out to be true most of the time. So it's like, all right, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But, but not because I'm Japanese. Yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, probably because I'm Yeah, Japanese. but it is because, yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of the joke. And so it's a very, it's a very small community. And it's just like just one or two degrees of separation. So that's really funny. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, it's a much smaller community, too, of course. Yeah. Um, than like the Chinese American community here, um, yeah. just obvious reasons. Definitely. What's your family's take on on what you've accomplished so far? Oh yeah, I mean it's been a it's been like, it's been great. I mean super supportive. Um, I think the same. They were kind of maybe in the same boat as the landlord, where <laughs> they was like, <laughs> I don't know what you're getting yourself into, but if you feel like this is what you need to do, then try it. I mean, yeah. Um, they were they were pretty they're always been really supportive about it and very, very happy for how it's turned out. Um, I mean, it was a big decision for me, like what I was going to do when, when I opened Hopscotch, but you know, I was, I was 29 at the time and I was like, well, I don't really have that much money. If I lose it all, I'll be 30 and broke, which eh, it's not so bad. It could be <laughs> older and broke. So like, just try it and see what happens. And, uh, kind of rolled the dice. So I think, you know, I explained that to them. I mean, that was a very conscious decision. I knew that going into it. Like, either try it now or don't try it at all. You just hear these stories of, um, and work with these guys that they've always have aspirations of wanting to open their own thing. And But, you know, you get married and you have kids or whatever, and all of a sudden, like, losing all your money is really not an option. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of precludes a lot of people from entering. Um, so, you know, and I knew that. I knew that. I had paid attention and listened to, like, old you know sous chefs and whatnot talk about these things and so that was a very conscious decision and I explained that to my family and they were like all right if you're gonna do it I guess now's the time to do it yeah totally yeah you gotta try it once you have the freedom to try it yeah what's been the most challenging thing about um about your job and having opened hopscotch and now Atani ramen yeah the most challenging part is is um it's probably staffing I mean not just because there's a shortage of it which everyone knows but it's just kind of keeping the staff really engaged in, in what's going on. Um, that's a big concern for me. Like, am I gonna, I, I want like my staff at Hopscotch, I have such a great relationship with them. They've been with me for so long and I definitely want to keep being their leader and their supporter and being really active in, in their own growth. And um, so that's been, that's been a challenge and it's just been you know, having to have really, really open conversations with them. Even when you think everything's cool, it's good just to check in, make mm-hmm. sure, um, give people a chance to express themselves. And um, because that's really important for me. I mean, it's a kind of a, you know, it's, it's a responsibility that I've been really like 
taking on where it's like, okay, I have like, you know, when I open house, it's like I was saying, it's like either I lose my money or I don't, like whatever. And, but now it's like, man, if something goes wrong for either location, how many employees we have now and like all these other things. And like, it's not just me that I'm trying to provide for. I'm trying to provide for this whole family of uh, employees that I have and all of their families. And so the responsibility is, is, um, is great. And it's, um, I'm, I'm very willing to take it on. It's just, that's kind of been the big thing. Like, okay, I have all these people now that are really, really, uh, depending on the success of both restaurants. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to hear kind of a common theme with the people that we get to talk to on menu stories is, um, at first pass, it just seems like to be a great restaurant owner or to be a great chef or whatever it is, uh, the focus we would think would be on the food, but almost always it comes back to being great people leaders. Yeah. And um, people leaders. I know that sounded like people <laughs> leaders. People <laughs> leaders. <laughs> and, and it's just so, I've always been impressed with how, uh, how mindful the people that we talk to are about being great mentors and building up their team and the, the respect that they have for their staff and the people that work for them. Um, so I think that's a lesson that can translate to any industry. So it's great to hear that that's yeah, as well. Yeah, that's been, because for me, like, you know, you go to culinary school, you study with the chefs, and you learn all about food and cooking and how to run and manage a restaurant, numbers-wise. Yeah. And then there's a whole other thing about, like, business acumen, and, and like, we don't, no one has an HR department. No one has, like, so, so you kind of take on all those roles, too. And, and um, that's all self-taught. Like, you know, you get books or whatever like seminars or anything you can do and so i mean i'm always encouraging our staff to to further their growth in the profession and um it's a really hard transition to transfer from even from line cook to sous chef where you're now managing people is very hard you could be the best cook on staff and just have no idea when it comes to like how to manage a staff which is a hard thing to learn and so and then you have that transition, then you have to transition from being a sous chef or a chef de cuisine to being a business owner. It's a whole other set of things. So it, it, those kinds of things, I've I found myself really studying more than the food aspects in recent years, just because the stakes have gotten higher and um, it's really important, so yeah. Yeah, definitely. What's been the most rewarding thing? I think it's the same thing really with the, with the staff because you know, staff comes and goes, and some of um, some stay with you though, and it's awesome. And like they just like really satisfied with their work environment, and um, you're just creating those those they're creating their whole like way of life, which is awesome. And I think that for us, we try and say like, yeah, like we're all know what we have to do. We're all professionals, um, and let's all have fun doing it because you should be stoked to go to work and. Uh, and you should get paid fairly for it and you should be happy in your life. And so like for me, the work-life balance thing has been a real struggle for myself personally and then also to implement with my staff. The nice thing about like Hopscotch being so established, we're open seven days a week, lunch and dinner. So I've started doing this thing with the cooks now where um, the cooks work one or two lunch shifts um, a week and then they have they work three or four nights a week but that gives them three or four nights off a week so instead of working like your five night shifts and having two days off um they have now like three or four nights because their other friends are 
nine to fivers or whatnot. They can still see them the majority of the week, which is which has been really great because, you know, even the cooks that come in that are like, I'm so hardcore, I'm going to work this and this, two jobs, like I'll work every day. And then two months later, they're like completely burned out and they don't come in anymore. So it's been a, it's been a lesson to really kind of foster that work-life balance, even if they don't think they need it or want it, because um, they do need it and they do want it. They just don't know how to go about it. And then some people feel guilty for doing it. So there's all these things and it's just kind of uh, setting the tone that this is how we're going to operate here. Like, we're going to have a really great balance. But when you're here, like, we expect a lot of you. And then when you're not here, we're going to totally respect your time off. So, yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing everything with us. Yeah, my pleasure. This is great. I'm glad you guys could make it out and see some shows. Next time you go see a show at the Fox Theater in Oakland, be sure to stop in to Itani Ramen for a hearty bowl to tide you over for the evening. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we meet the quiet legend behind Omnivore Salt, Angelo Garo, San Francisco's true renaissance man. Stay tuned. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. You can listen on our website, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Special thanks to Siska Marcus, Menu Stories editor and producer, and Patrick Wong, our videographer. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time, happy eating. Happy eating.